Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21? Uh, It's on page 903 of the Blue Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Over the next uh, five Sundays, we're on the home stretch of this sermon series on the book of Acts. I looked it up out of curiosity last night myself. Uh, Started February 2015 and will end up lasting 28 Sundays, probably one of the longest uh, sermon series we've done here. But last week, as a follow-up to Easter, by the way, I like to tell people um, when uh, one of the pastors is missing, Josh is down in Montclair preaching at our uh, first daughter church, our church plant way back in 2002 or three. Uh, They are without a second pastor. He went off to pastor his own church, and uh, they're searching for another pastor, and every now and then they call up and say, hey, can you guys spare Josh to go down and preach and give their pastor a break? And so we're glad to share. Uh, Betsy's here with the, the family. But last week, as a follow-up to Easter, Josh brought us back to chapter 1 of Acts to point us to Jesus' ascension. So on Easter, Jesus rose from the dead in demonstrating perfectly complete triumph, victory over sin and death. But his plan for his people involved something additional that has two parts. His ascending back to the uh, right hand of the Father in heaven, which would trigger his sending of his Holy Spirit to dwell within believers at Pentecost. Ascension and Pentecost go hand in hand, and they're necessary for us to experience the fullness of what Jesus intends for his people. Um, his physical absence was not only okay for the church, it would open up a, a window to richer blessing because instead of Jesus' physical presence being available to a certain number of folks for 30 plus years on earth, wherever he happened to be in Palestine, Jesus grants the fullness of his spirit to dwell within every believer in Jesus, to be with them wherever we go whenever we happen to live. And that connects directly with our sermon series graphic, Acts equals Jesus part two. The focus, the spotlight of all of history is still on Jesus. He is the climactic character, person in all of history, but he's not here anymore, physically at least. And yet he continues to direct from the director's chair all of the affairs of human history, and in particular, the, the work of his church, He works in accomplishing his salvation plan through his people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. This morning, we're going to pick off where we left off uh, before Palm Sunday. And and admittedly, it's a section of Acts that has long narrative sections, some of the themes of which are a little bit repetitive, and it's tough to capture the end of Acts in 30-minute sermon chunks. And so what I'm going to do is a little bit out of the ordinary this morning, no three-point outline. Uh, What I'm going to do is storytell, to fill in the blanks, some of what's happening in uh, in and through the life of Paul the Apostle, and occasionally um, root us in a handful of verses in order to pull out a a, a few themes, main themes that uh, we can find in this passage, all right? All the more so, I'd love for you to have your Bibles open so that you can get a wide-angle Uh, perspective on what God's doing uh, through his servant Paul. In our last, uh, let me me pause where I would normally read the whole passage and pray. Lord, we do pray as we have sung that you would speak your truth, 
embodied in Jesus himself, who is the word, and that you would speak that truth to us, that you would overflow it uh, from our midst until your church is completely built, until the earth is filled to the brim with your glory. Speak again, Lord, through this word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our last passage, we were in Acts chapter 20, and I uh, alluded to uh, a former New York Times bestseller book called The Last Lecture by Randy Pausch. He was dying of cancer, and he decided to leave words of wisdom, um, apparently to the Carnegie Mellon University community, but actually he intended it to be his last words of wisdom as a dad to three little boys who were going to grow up without a dad the last lecture. Paul gave his last lecture to some of his closest friends, the leaders of the church at Ephesus. Um, And they knew it because God had told Paul through the Holy Spirit that he would never see them again. He would go to Jerusalem where he would suffer and be thrown in prison. Um, On the way to Jerusalem, including this emotional encounter with the leaders of the church at Ephesus, Paul experiences this, uh, we we get a picture of Paul experiencing rich relationship, spiritual friendship that that can only be explained by this shared life we have in Christ about whom we sing as a Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Some of these people didn't even know him. They had just met him and yet yet they're weeping and embracing him, not wanting to let him go. I, I can't help thinking of of an old saint who has lived a, a good life, who is confident in his or her status in Christ, promised eternity, ready to go home, and yet some loved ones just have a hard time letting go. Paul knows where he's going, home, to be with the Lord. So, uh, When we pick up the story, Paul is a few miles west of Jerusalem on the coasts of the Mediterranean in Caesarea, and a prophet named Agabus shows up, 21 verse 11. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Not good news coming from the prophet. And yet here's Paul's response in verse 13. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He's asking them to let him go. He's asking them to release him for the purpose uh, of the end of his life. So he makes it to Jerusalem as uh, chapter 21 unfolds and uh, meets with some of the apostles who affirm his place amongst the leadership of the church. And um, he is in the temple worshiping one day when an angry mob discovers who he is and begins to attack him. The Jewish leaders see Paul as anti-law, anti-temple. They see him as as against everything that they hold sacred, and they can't stand it anymore. The Roman soldiers intervene. They rescue Paul, ironically, by arresting him. They don't even know what he's done, who he is, but they cart him off. They assume he's the instigator in verse 33. And then we get to verse 37 of chapter 21. 
As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. And for the next few chapters, this, will, this theme will run into next uh, Sunday's passage. For the next few, few chapters, Paul is stuck between two strong opposing forces. There are the Jewish leader, uh, religious leaders on one side who are incredibly angry with him. And then there's Roman political forces, uh, some of which are law enforcement, some of which are higher ups. Neither understands him because he doesn't fit into any categories. Back in uh, 2001, I was a pastoral intern at a large church in Memphis called Second Presbyterian. Second Pres uh, was a leader in uh, its denomination uh, and in the area, and so it would help out a lot of the other little churches in the denomination in the the area, in the surrounding states, uh, most of which um, were without a pastor. Either they were too small to support a pastor full-time, or they were between pastors and just needed somebody to come and preach to them. As a pastoral intern, I did what I was told. And so one week I got assigned to head out two and a half to three hours west of the big city of Memphis into the boonies of rural Arkansas. Use your imagination a little bit. Picture this Chinese guy showing up in the sticks of Arkansas. I'm, I'm pretty convinced that some of the folks saw me walk in, sit down, and wondered where my translator was, if he was parking the car or something, you know, um, Guys thinking, how's this going to work? This the preacher? We don't speak Chinese. Um, because that was, the, that was the only category they had. You know, Asian face, fresh off the boat, doesn't speak English, not sure what's going to happen here. But after the service, there was a group of folks waiting to greet me and, and shake hands. And the first guy in, in line says, where are you from? You speak English real good. <laughs> not what they expected. And I felt like saying, thank you, uh, but, but I'm not even sure we speak the same language. Um, they didn't have a category in rural Arkansas for the Oriental who showed up to preach the gospel to them. Paul, the apostle, doesn't fit into any categories. He's not what they expect. He's very Jewish. He's very upright. He knows the law. And yet the Jewish religious leaders see him as a traitor because uh, he, even though he hasn't rejected the law of God, he, in his teaching, he's disrupting the foundations of their worldview. They think that personal discipline and moral righteousness and, and strict law keeping will save them, will earn them God's favor. And on the other hand, the Roman authorities don't understand at all what's going on. This is just a religious disagreement. They don't care. All they care about is keeping the peace, and they will arrest and cart off a rabble-rouser without even knowing who he is and what he's done, whether or not he's guilty. Here's the irony, the divine irony, that every step of the way, every little incident, every true-life character that contributes to Paul's demise, if you will, is being used by God in his perfect providence, wise ordaining of all things, 
to bring Paul right into the belly of the Roman Empire. He will show up in Rome in a few chapters. Yes, as a prisoner. Yes, with shackles on. But like a Trojan horse, uh, inserting truth into the midst of a culture that is filled with false gods. Like a Trojan horse bringing bright light into the midst of a culture that was very dark. So Paul addresses the crowd. Even while he's being carted off, because of the angry mob that wanted to kill him, Paul is concerned for their spiritual well-being. He gets permission to speak. And the amazing thing is that in a span of a, of a few minutes, in real time, we would, we would guess from the, the flow of the narrative, he goes from this near-death experience, had the, rest, uh, the Roman soldiers not stepped in, he would have been a dead man, trampled upon, uh, used as an example. He goes from a near-death experience to moments later having the undivided attention of practically the entire city. How do we know that? Is that an exaggeration? Well, back in chapter 21, it's not up here, uh, there's just this little detail that Luke, the author of Acts, gives us. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. There was no TV. There was no internet. There were no, uh, you know, people didn't have access to even books. If something was going on in the middle of the city, they came running. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's going to be action. Maybe uh, some leader from a far off uh, part of the empire is here to deliver us news. Um, maybe there's a, a good philosophical religious disagreement going on, and we're going to listen to the debate and expand our, our, our minds. Uh, practically the entire city was at rapt attention, ready to listen to the Apostle Paul. And he motions to the crowd. Scholars will tell us this was a typical oratory gesture to get everybody's attention. I wish I knew what that was, you know, to try it on you guys. Uh, everybody pay attention. But um, one author writes about this scene that Paul's several steps that transform the mood demonstrate how incredibly media savvy he was. And so earlier he had spoken to this Roman commander who was carting him off. And how did he speak to him? With formal Greek. Why? To, to demonstrate to this um, powerful centurion um, that he was no common criminal, that he was no uneducated rabble rouser, that this was a guy of, of uh, high standing, not to brag, but at least to get the guy's attention so that he could have this opportunity to give an evangelistic speech. But then when he gives this sign and, and everyone starts to wonder what, what's going on, what gets them silent, chapter 22, verse 2 tells us is, when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Another aspect of Paul's brilliance in turning the mood on a dime. Why Aramaic? Well, a little bit of the background means uh, it shows us that the Jews uh, from Palestine over the decades had begun to spread uh, into other parts of the Roman Empire and settle in different cities and, of course, take on a bit of their, the local customs and, in particular, the local language. And so the reason the city is overflowing in this scene is because, and the reason Paul was in such a rush to get from um, Greece and Asia Minor back to Jerusalem was because he wanted to make it for the Feast of Pentecost. 
Pentecost was one of the annual feasts that drew worshipers of the God of Israel from all of the lands to which they had traveled to make new homes. And the only way they could communicate effectively was to use a common language, Aramaic, which wasn't necessarily anyone's native language anymore. But they, they, they understood it enough to be able to communicate. Paul realizes here that uh, when you're listening to a language that is your second language or beyond, you need to pay attention a little extra, right? The, 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 the grammar, the nuances, the, um, the idioms don't come naturally, and so you're paying attention. He manages this moment brilliantly with the undivided attention of the city for what purpose? So that he can share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. They wanted to kill him. They wished he were dead. And Paul is pausing, not to win his freedom here, at least yet, to share with them the hope to which God is calling them. He's an evangelist to the end. He starts by saying this. I'm going to paraphrase chapter 22. He wants to build common ground. I'm one of you. I'm a Jew. I'm as Jew as they come. I studied under one of the most famous rabbis. I know the law. I'm as zealous as any of you here. In fact, I understand why you're so upset because I used to be just like you. I was putting followers of this Jesus in prison. I, I, I was a, a really high up insider. The high priests was sending me on missions to get rid of these people. But verse 6, on one of these missions, as I approached Damascus, a bright light shone out of heaven, and I ran into Jesus. Or he ran into me. This same Jesus, whose followers I was so hell-bent on destroying, imprisoning, killing. And he tells the, his, the rest of his conversion story. And, and that's something we need to pause and, and, and wonder at, because Luke, the author of Acts with all the things he could have reported, all the details he could have included, limited papyrus, right? Uh, he didn't have digital media where he could just go on and on and on and store it in the cloud. Of all the stuff he had to report and felt compelled to share with the church for the generations to come, he decides to include Paul's conversion story three different times. First in chapter 9, in the flow when it actually happened. Secondly, again here, as he's preaching to this angry mob. And then thirdly, we'll see it again in chapter 26 before Roman governors. Why? One reason, I think, is to emphasize this truth, that religion only ever finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Paul was on religion mission. (laughs) I'm going to make people conform. I'm going to protect the law. And he ran into Jesus. Religion only ever finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Religion on its own makes a savior out of self because it's up to you, right? Paul was the best of the best. He was the best educated. He trained under the superstar uh, rabbi. He was the best connected. He was the most zealous of all the Pharisees. He had this pedigree in his family background and this resume that was unparalleled. And it was all aimed at the wrong goal. It was all headed in the wrong direction. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the German pastor and anti-Nazi collaborator, wrote this in a letter to a friend. 
if you board the wrong train, it is no use running along the corridor in the opposite direction. It doesn't matter how fast you are. It doesn't matter how athletic you are to dodge obstacles in your way, the lady with the stroller, the guy with the briefcase. If you're on the wrong train, you're headed in the wrong direction. Nothing you do is going to improve that standing. Paul, um, before he met Jesus, was absolutely heading in the wrong direction. He thought everything was right. He thought he was serving God. He thought he was orienting all of his energies Godward. And what he was doing was persecuting Jesus himself. Religion only ever finds its fulfillment, proper life-giving fulfillment in Jesus. After coming face-to-face with Jesus in his conversion here in chapter 22, Paul realizes something that he later captures really well in his letter to the Philippians. He says this, chapter 3, verse 7, whatever were gains to me, now in Philippians, he had just finished recounting, it sounds like he's bragging, but he just talked about all of his resume, okay? But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that was what he was really good at, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul's turning the Jewish worldview upside down. What enabled him to truly love a murderous mob that was out for blood? What motivated him to pause and demonstrate patiently compassion to point them to Jesus? Two things. He saw himself in his enemy and he saw Christ in himself. He saw Christ, uh, he saw himself first in his enemy. The reality is that they are who he used to be, not that far in, in the distant future. That, folks, is the key to gospel compassion, whether or not you're an apostle. Can you see yourself in the spiritual mirror? Can you see the reality of your sinful self? Do you know deeply your flaws, your failings, in order to repent of them in the moment? Because if you do, that fuels gospel compassion. When someone wrongs you, whether or not they're spitting venom at you as the angry mob was, or whether they've just ruffled your feathers the wrong way, if you know fully in detail the depths of your sinful heart, When you look at this other person sinning against you, you will say, I recognize that. That's me. Not necessarily just like that. I add variations of sin that look like me personally, but the root of what just happened to me, yeah, I recognize it because I have the same. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, Paul says elsewhere. And if you see their sinful patterns and they're familiar to your own heart, how can you be rooted in bitterness? How can you fuel resentment? How can you condemn? Your heart is freed to forgive and in compassion to move towards the other person, to help them. If, if you have uh, that stuff, that venom in your past, 
It's only because by God's grace, he has dragged you out of that enslaving hole. And now, with empathy, suffering with, because you understand what it's like to be in that hole, you can walk over and and extend a hand rather than saying, how dare you, in condescending pity or self-righteous disdain. Instead, you say, brother, sister, friend, I've been there. Isn't that the beauty of CR? Celebrate recovery on Wednesdays. Nobody's going to judge you. You show up struggling with a hurt habit or hang-up, an addiction, a, uh, uh, whatever messiness in your life, and someone's going to greet you at the door and say, yeah, <laughs> I get it. I get you. You're in a safe place. That's, that's where gospel compassion is rooted. Well, Paul's personal story injects another element in this su- surprising exchange with the crowd. During his uh, conversion encounter, again, he's recounting um, in chapter 22, Jesus sent Paul to Ananias, who is uh, a believer ahead in uh, Damascus, and Paul is blind. He goes to uh, Ananias. Ananias um, heals him of that blindness and then says to Paul, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Here's the reason that would have rocked Paul's world. Only Jews get baptized. I mean, oh, oh, I'm sorry, only Gentiles get baptized. Baptism is cleansing. Baptism is washing away of the filth of your heart because you're unclean. Only Gentiles are unclean. Jews don't get baptized. They're, they're clean, in a sense, by virtue of their pedigree. That's what they thought. I don't need baptizing. And here is the Jew among all Jews, the best of the best. And Ananias, a nobody, says, be baptized. (laughs) Wow. Ananias says, all that stuff, that's where Paul, that's why we pointed to Philippians 3. I I now consider loss. Garbage means nothing. Because Paul came to realize the uncleanness of his own heart. And so here's a Pharisee, back to Acts chapter 22. The best at obeying the law, they're after him because they see him as anti-law. He was the best. And he's telling this Jewish crowd, not only that he needed cleansing when he was converted, but that each of them need cleansing. Just as much as the Gentiles. And we're jumping ahead for a moment, but that's the beginning of the end. They won't take it after that. It's the last straw. Paul's saying, in your sin, you are unacceptable to God. doesn't matter what kind of law-keeping you do. You sin. You can't rescue yourself. You can't be good enough. But if you look to Jesus the Messiah, if you believe that he took your place on that cross where you deserve to be, then the Father looks upon you with full love and acceptance and makes you clean, something you could never do yourself. What enabled Paul to love this murderous mob? He saw himself in them. And secondly, he saw Christ in himself. He's persecuting the church. He's on this mission, hell-bent on destroying followers of the way, the term for uh, early Christianity. Um, and he can't understand. Why are these people you know, destroying Judaism by following a dead hero? And on the road to Damascus, on one of those missions, he's confronted by a very much alive Jesus. 
The risen Jesus who had conquered sin and death changes everything in Paul, just as he does in us. Here's a, a snapshot of Paul's thinking, again from Philippians chapter 1. Paul says to the church in Philippi, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, surviving, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And so here's his impeccable logic. If you kill me, if you stone me, if you trample me, if I go to Roman prison and rot from the rats or starvation, it's okay. (laughs) Jesus is risen from the dead, and that victory over the grave is promised to me. I will receive resurrection glory. Do what you want. But if I make it through your mob, if I get out of prison, all that means is I have more opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. I will have more fruitful labor, Paul says, and I'm fine with that too. Whatever God wants, he's the master. You see the conundrum um, you'd be in if you were either one of the Jewish religious authorities or the Roman governorship. This guy can't be dented. He can't be broken. Either way, he wins, and he's smiling at you, (laughs) which is the worst. Do you see how that fuels gospel courage in the face of danger and fear and even death itself? Last strand of this long narrative that we'll look at is, I already um, alluded to this, is how this evangelistic speech comes to a very abrupt end. Uh, he, it ends when he points to the unique calling that God has placed on his life after he's become a follower of Christ. Um, this second... Um, recounting of Paul's conversion story in Acts, right? Uh, It shows up three times. This is the second one. One of the unique things about this little account is it um, helps us understand one of the details that when the bright light shone, Paul asked two questions. One, who are you? And when he got the answer, the clarity, this is Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of sinners, the hope of Israel. He had a second question, which should be our only logical response back to God, then what shall I do, Lord? Some of you are here, and you're still asking the first question, and that's a good place to be. You're not sure about Christianity. You're not sure about Jesus. You might say, I have no problems believing in Jesus, but sin and salvation, you know, I'm not there yet. Um, I, I, I love the conversations that I get to have with some of you uh, who come and quite honestly say, yeah, you know, I I hear what you're saying on Sundays. I I see what you're pointing to in Scripture. I'm not there yet. Keep asking that first question. It's a beautiful place to be. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Jesus? What do you mean for my life? And if and when the Holy Spirit of God brings new life to you in your soul, and enables you to see the beauty of Jesus, the truth of who He is, and the truth of who you are as a sinner in need of that salvation, then what I'm saying, which now applies to the majority of us in this room, there's only one logical question to ask the King of all kings, the Creator of this universe, and the Savior of your soul. Then what shall I do? I'm yours. 
It's impeccable logic. If you come to a place where you understand who Jesus is as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you say, meh, <laughs> I'm going to do my own thing. That's the most irrational thing that a human being could have ever do. Paul does the most rational, provided by the Spirit. What shall I do? And that shapes the rest of his life, and can we say that shapes how he will die? He tells the crowd the answer he got for, uh, uh, for who are you and what shall I do? Chapter 22, verse 17, when I returned to Jerusalem after he was converted and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. And then verse 21, then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. The crowd went wild, not in a good way. They lost all control. They were tolerating him until this point, but as soon as he said Gentiles, no way am I going to accept, the crowd would say, that I'm the same as that outsider. No way am I going to accept that all of this effort that I have poured into a good, being a good person before the eyes of God, no way am I going to accept your teaching that this was all for naught, that I was heading in the wrong direction on the wrong train the entire time thinking I was doing really well. And the crowd goes wild. God's promises are for the clean, they would say, the Jews. And the outsiders, they have to earn their way in, get baptized, be washed, go through this extended period of purification. But this is Paul's life mission. And he didn't say this to stick it to them. He said this because this is the truth. This was the purpose of his life, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations, Whoever you are, whatever ways you've screwed up in life, and we all have, however many horrible decisions you have made that you think are irreversible, irredeemable, even if you would say it is a dead end and it is death, emphasis on dead end, the reality Paul is preaching to us is resurrection. (laughs) That's okay. No dead end is a dead end. New life comes through faith in Jesus. The Lord led Paul to Jerusalem so that he'd get arrested at the inciting of the mob so that he would be brought by the Romans up the chain of command. We'll continue that story next week. So that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth through the center of the most powerful empire the world had known at the time. He will get to Rome. Could there have been another less painful way? someone greater than Paul asked that very question on the night he was betrayed, on the night before he was crucified. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked the Father in fervent prayer, let this cup pass. Father, is there another way? And the Father's answer was no. And Jesus knew it and he said, not my will, but yours be done. Don't make, the same, don't make the mistake to, to, to think that Paul's suffering was just like Jesus, that Paul is imitating his Savior. Paul's suffering and Paul's life mission have meaning only because Jesus, both God and man, perfect in every way, fully righteous, the 
uh, lamb of God without blemish, the ultimate sacrifice. They have meaning, Paul's life and mission, only because Jesus laid down his life in accepting the path of suffering leading to the cross so that we, all who trust in him, along with the apostle, might have life even though our physical life and vitality are drained so that we might inherit the riches of eternity even though all things might be taken away from us. This is the hope of the gospel offered freely to all who would trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, show us as you do at the heart of the gospel over and over in our own personal experiences that the path to glory always involves suffering. Who are we to think that we are exempt? Who are we to think that we deserve a suffering-free road when Jesus, the perfect God-man, the King of all kings, the Savior of sinners, had to walk that path of Calvary. Show us his courage. Show us his overflowing love for us, though we are undeserving, and lead us to awe and worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.